It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension? There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Tom Tiger. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero show, recorded in the studios at 3CR in Melbourne and syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network. We're also podcasted on the internet at bze.org.au and at 3cr.org.au and whatever podcasting app you choose to use. You can follow us on Twitter at bzetechshow. My name is Laura and my co-host today is Kay and Michael. Good morning, guys. Good morning, Laura. Morning. Today we'll be talking to Alicia Webb, who is Project Manager with Clean Energy Council. Alicia Webb is a wind engineer with several years' experience working in Australian wind industry. She started her career for Vitas on the construction of 30-megawatt Victorian wind farms and most recently spent three years as a consultant at Parison Brickenoff. During that time, Alicia specialised in early feasibility studies, wind monitoring and the design and installation of monitoring masts. She also did energy resource analysis, shadow flicker analysis, and various other technical reporting for wind farms. Alicia has written a research report for Sustainability Victoria and the Alternative Technology Association called The Viability of Domestic Wind Turbines in Urban Melbourne, and continues to write for ATA's magazine Renew. She has also volunteered at the British Wind Energy Association and a local community radio station. Good morning, Alicia. Welcome. Thank you. Good morning to you too. Alicia, can you tell us how you first became interested in the solar and renewable energy industry? Yeah, sure. I studied mechanical engineering at UWA in Perth, and as you're probably aware, Perth and WA in general has a pretty one-tracked industry. And in fact, my parents met and had me in a mining town, so it looked like my future was pretty mapped out. But after doing three months of vacation work between third and fourth year, making big blocks of aluminium at the Bell Bay Smelter in Tasmania, I just realised that I didn't care that much about minerals or resources and luckily in my fourth year watched an old VHS video about the wonders of the Danish wind industry and I thought that's what I want to do. And it wasn't really happening in WA at the time so I got on a plane straight after finishing uni and moved to Melbourne and I've fairly much been working in the wind industry since. It's interesting because I thought WA had quite a lot of wind farms. They do these days which is good. Back when I finished uni in 2003 Not so many. They had the littlest old ones in Australia down near Albany in Denmark, but they were already existing and built by the state. There wasn't a lot of jobs going. And to this day, a lot of the companies that own and develop those wind farms are based on the East Coast. And I think Esperance, wasn't that the first wind farm in Australia? Um, Possibly. I thought Denmark and Albany were very early ones, but it's very windy WA, so. Yeah, it is. (laughs) And what do wind engineers do? Uh, Well, Basically, we do all the sort of technical design stuff. We don't design turbines because Australia tends to be a technology taker when it comes to turbines themselves, and we buy them in from Europe and America and China these days. But what we do do is design where to put them. So it's actually quite a technical process to understand the wind regime and the curves of the land, like where the hills and trees are, and to place the turbines in such a way that the downstream wind, which is called the wake, doesn't interfere with the next turbine in the group and diminish the amount of power you can extract from that wind. So we would measure the wind regime for often a couple of years, maybe up to five years, 
using a long skinny mast with instrumentation on it. And then we'd end up with hundreds of thousands of data lines and we would use that to create an understanding of the wind regime and how much power you would get out of the turbines if you place them in certain arrays. Yeah. And Laura mentioned earlier that you did shadow flicker analysis. Can yeah. you tell us what that is? Well, that's just one of the um, interesting technical aspects of designing a wind farm. What shadow flicker is, is if the sun is setting and the sun is behind a turbine with respect to your house's window, then what you can get is a flickering effect onto the window, a bit like if you're driving your car down a very leafy street and on your dashboard, the light is flickering between the trees. And so that is perceived by some homeowners as an unpleasant experience, as you can imagine. And solutions that involve planting trees near your home or drawing the curtains. But there are regulations around how many hours per day or per year you can create shadow flicker on a person's window. And so to model that involves software packages that draw the path of the sun every day of the year and understand exactly where the rotor of the turbine is and use mathematics to figure out how many minutes per year there will be shadow flicker. And we have to design the wind farm with that in mind. Wow, fascinating. A bit like the, um, the, the previous state government fixed that, didn't they? Just made them two kilometres away from anything. Well, yeah, of course, the further the turbine is away, the more diffuse any light going around the blades are and you're mm. less likely to notice a flickering effect. Mm. Now, you did a paper called The Viability of Domestic Wind Turbines in Urban Melbourne. Can you elaborate a bit on that and talk about the constraints in Melbourne? Yeah, I sure can. That was back in 2007. It was a really interesting project for me. Domestic turbines, of course, are those small turbines that people might consider putting at their homes. And back then, Sustainability Victoria were getting so many questions from urban Melbourne homeowners saying, can we get one, can we get one, that they wanted to know basically what, what is the deal? Is it going to work? And what are the economics like compared to solar panels? And what kind of regulations are there around placing a turbine on a big pole in your backyard? And we found that, somewhat unsurprisingly, they were not that commercially viable, which I imagine is much, much worse now because the price of solar panels in, since 2007, as you can imagine, has absolutely crashed in the most dramatic fashion. So I think if you wanted to generate power at home in urban Melbourne, you would definitely go solar panels. But urban turbines still have a place out in the country where it's very windy. The problem with Melbourne is that buildings and trees create what's called turbulence, and that makes the wind resource worse. So it's as though the urban area is a shadow, if we were talking about solar panel. And so really, to get smooth, fast, what's called laminar flow of wind, which is the opposite of turbulent flow, you need to be away from obstacles. So urban Melbourne, really not an ideal place for wind energy. Unless you put them right up high, which isn't really aesthetically pleasing. Exactly. They'd have to be very high. So moving on to the main topic of today, the Clean Energy Council. Can you tell us more about the work the council does and what we'll go in, we'll get into the exhibition later, but just what the council does in general? Yeah, for sure. The Clean Energy Council is the industry-funded association representing renewable energy in Australia. So we are funded by member companies, which includes hundreds of solar companies and most of Australia's large wind companies bioenergy companies, marine energy companies and the like. And we act sort of as their voice. So we do some industry quality and development work, mostly with solar. We run the accreditation scheme, which means installers have to study and review their qualifications every year. And they have to install solar systems to a certain standard that is reviewed by the Clean Energy Council. We also do a lot of policy work. So, for example, you might have heard that at the moment the Victorian government has a renewable energy roadmap, and that was open for submissions until yesterday. 
And the Clean Energy Council policy team, which is me and my colleagues, wrote a 30-page document suggesting to the Victorian government what the renewable energy industry would like to see happen in order to really kickstart the transition. So we represent them and we liaise between government and industry and industry and community. And yeah, we're just, we try to be one voice for the renewable energy industry. Thanks. You're you're me straight into the next question about you being part of the policy team. You've just named a major activity, but what other activities does the policy team do? The policy team, I suppose, tries to act as an advisor. We advise our members of what's going on in the policy space at the government level. So if the federal or state government changes something that affects our members, we are responsible for communicating that and basically briefing them on how this might affect their business. And if the industry come up with an idea or a solution that will help roll out renewable energy more effectively, then we're responsible for trying to communicate that effectively to regulators and government bodies. So for example, this week, I sent a letter to state planning and environment ministers about some of the excellent work the Australian wind energy industry is doing around sharing the benefits of the projects with the wider community. And there's some really innovative ways in which communities are, are benefiting from wind, including forming a cooperative and purchasing a part of the project financially. So we make sure that the government is aware of that. And if the government changes something, like say the day they get the new wind commissioner, we make sure we communicate that with our members. That's similar to the experience that Germany has had where the small communities have purchased back the power production and all the lines and now they're the sources of their own energy within a community. Yeah, that's right. Is it something that we're seeing in Australia actually and in Victoria actually happening right now? Well, you've probably heard of Hepburn Wind. Mm. Uh, That's a two-turbine... Got a share in it. (laughs) Yeah, me too. Um, It's a two-turbine wind farm in Dalesford. And that's the first of its kind in Australia and very much based on the Danish model that you just mentioned. We would like to see more of those roll out, but they are a bit harder just because to build Hepburn Wind, a lot of the development costs and the technical reporting, which I was just talking about that wind engineers do, is the same scale and cost for building a much larger wind farm. Hmm. And for a community to negotiate all the steps they have to do in order to sign major multi-million dollar agreements with turbine suppliers and power offtake agreements is quite challenging. So the model I just mentioned before is where the community pool money, much like with Hepburn Wind, but rather than set up an entire wind farm, what they do is purchase a financial stake in a larger commercial wind farm going on nearby. So then they can sort of leverage the skills and economies of scale going into the commercial wind farm, but still put their own funds into owning a part of it. And that's, you know, just a different model and one that perhaps will be a bit more viable here in Australia where we have kind of got a different, more centralised, large-scale generation model than in Denmark and Germany where there's perhaps more smaller wind farms and also a generally more dense population living on the land area. So there's a few mm. differences. So just following this financial theme, I understand it's quite a, there's quite a financial incentive for farmers in renting their land for wind farms. What, what sort of yearly income could a farmer expect, say, when they're putting up a 50 megawatt system? Well, I will say that those contracts are commercial in confidence between a farmer and a wind farm developer. But a rule of thumb that I have checked with my industry and they will nod is somewhere around $10,000 per turbine per year. Mm. Now, some wind developers will negotiate based on the number of turbines and others will negotiate based on the capacity, like the power generating capacity on their land, which has effects later on. We've got a lot of wind farms in Victoria, for example, that have been approved a long time ago. And due to sort of up and down federal policy, they haven't built yet, but they're likely to build soon. And some of those wind farms are being redesigned now to use fewer, larger turbines. Mm. 
Because much like your TV, every year the technology gets larger and more efficient. And so the wind farms can be redesigned to make just as much or more power using fewer turbines. It's seen as a generally a lower amenity impact on the community. It's quicker and cheaper to build, so lower power prices for all of us. And in that way, a farmer that might have been excited about getting five turbines on their land might now get four or three. So Mm. there's pros and cons to all of that. But there's certainly a lot of financial incentive for a farmer because the footprint of the turbines relative to their other agricultural land is tiny. Mm. A few roads, a square of of hard stand here and there. And uh, they can make income that allows them to work less on the land or hire more people on the land or reclaim some of their land for native Or actually forest. keep farming the land. Exactly. <laughs> so a, so a lot of farmers are really keen. Yeah, yeah, and, and certainly understand that turbines are one thing where scale does matter in, uh, in terms of efficiency. Just a sort of side-related point. On your website, it states that South Australia has the most wind farms and generates over 40% of its electricity demand with wind power. But it has a lower number of projects in Western Australia. Does this mean that their installations are larger in general? Yeah, for sure. I mean, like we said, WA was kind of ahead of the curve, and they built a couple of tiny little old wind farms a long time ago in Denmark and Albany. And South Australia sort of jumped on a bit later and started building very large. In fact, last this year, no, last year, they completed Australia's second largest wind farm, which is Snowtown 2, mm-hmm. at 270 megawatts, which is mm. massive. Mm. And they have an incredible wind resource. <laughs> and the advantage they have over WA is that they can export their excess power into Victoria. So Victoria benefits, in terms of emissions at least, from yes. importing mm-hmm. clean South Australian power, whereas the Western Australian grid is electrically isolated, so they can't actually export power to anywhere. They have to use it themselves, and thus they're sort of constrained in how many wind farms they can put in at this time. Until we do the BZE recommendation of the DC line east to west coast to be able to swap it back and forward. There you go, exactly. You've developed a, <clears throat> a community engagement guideline for the wind industry. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. That was a CEC document that was released in 2013. Basically, as you would probably know, wind farms do cop their share of, I suppose, angst and opposition in the community. Now, of course, we say that's a uh, vocal minority, but like any development, not everybody likes change and not everybody likes to see their landscape changing, which is fair enough, really. So, the way in which wind companies engage with the community is absolutely vital. If if the community feel like they're being not told things or if they're being told things in a way that isn't compassionate, if the people building wind farm aren't good listeners or are seen to be arrogant or secretive, these kind of behaviours can have massive effects on the locals. So basically we want to constantly improve the way that wind companies engage with the community. We are, you know, obviously as a, as a group, all the wind companies and the CEC representing them, are very dedicated to engaging with community members respectfully and in an open and transparent fashion. So the community engagement guidelines were supposed to basically provide guidelines for how to be good citizens in the community as a wind developer. And basically, we're reviewing those at the moment, what parts of them work the best, what parts don't work as well, so that we can continuously improve the way we behave in communities. You're listening to the Beyond Zero radio show. Our guest today is Alicia Webb from the Clean Energy Council, and we're discussing the Clean Energy Council, her role within that and what they do, and what we're going on to talk about the Australian Energy Exhibition, which starts in Melbourne on the October 7th. Just before we do, just a quick question from following on from the previous one. Do you have any community health monitoring guidelines as well? Yeah, so we actually don't monitor community health because as the wind industry, we're not doctors. But 
what we do do is rely on expert health bodies in the government to make sure they're confident about the effect that wind farms might have on community health. So at the moment, the National Health and Medical Research Council, which is Australia's highest medical body, has unequivocally stated that there is no link between wind farms and health. And at a state level, we defer to state medical agencies and the Victorian Health Agency has also put out information detailing the link between wind farms and health and obviously finding that there is none. So we obviously argue that wind farms and solar panels and all renewable energy is in fact much safer and cleaner and better for the community's health than the existing high emissions generation stock. So yeah, we do, of course, if a link was found between health and wind farms, we would immediately act to resolve it. But at this point, the highest experts in Australia has found that there is no link. So so we go on trying to clean up the air, I suppose. Thanks. Lisa, as we uh, for showed at the start, the Clean Energy Council is partnering with the All Energy Australia for Australia's largest clean energy conference, which is next week, starting October 7 and going through to the following day, the 8th. What are the highlights of the conference? Well, look, I've looked at this conference directory and it's pretty expansive. It goes for two whole days. The opening plenary is going to be the big ticket in town, I think. Opposition leader Bill Shorten is speaking, and also our Victorian Minister for Energy and Resources, Lily D'Ambrosio, which will be fabulous. There's lots and lots of high-profile names. My own Chief Executive, Kane Thornton, is speaking in that session, which is not to be missed. (laughs) Um, Just after that, on day one, we break into all the different technologies. So you can go to a session on energy storage or the future of the grid or community energy or innovative energy concepts. And of course, in that session on day one, 11am, there's the wind energy session and yours truly will be giving a wrap up of Australian wind energy policy at the federal and state level, which is my third year in a row doing that. So mm-hmm. I'll be able to provide somewhat of an update. And uh, just after that, my personal highlight of day one is the Women in Renewables lunch, which the CEC is running. Women in Renewables, much like many other technical industries are somewhat underrepresented. In fact, if you glance at the speaker list for this conference, you'll note there's about three or four women and many tens of men speaking. So we're having a women's lunch so we can get together and discuss how to increase our representation in the industry and tickets to that are available on the Clean Energy Council's website. Yay, I'll be there. (laughs) And and the following day, you mentioned the, the first day, the Wednesday? Yeah, look, day two has lots more sessions on all the different technologies, including marine, which I always find quite fascinating. Market developments, more solar stuff, hybrid energy systems, which is where you put a wind farm and some solar panels together and utilise the same grid connection, which is cool. Because they're often complementary generation, aren't they? The solar tends to perform best in the middle of the day and often less wind and then at night or the evenings you'll you'll get a, a breeze. Yeah, it can be the case at certain sites. Wind engineers would have to study the wind regime to figure (laughs) that out. Some of them, like in Perth, you always get wind in the evening as the Fremantle doctor comes in, Mm. but sites are quite geographically specific. But yeah, some of them are quite complementary with solar power, which is good. But yeah, lots more talk about energy storage, which is obviously the buzzword of 2015, what with Mr. Musk in the US coming out with his power wall technology. And And a bunch of others that don't get as much press. (laughs) Exactly. So uh, everybody are talking about energy storage all day. And of course, the ATRA conference is actually professional development for solar installers, and that's running as part of this conference, which is great. So solar installers can brush up their skills and industry knowledge and make sure they're across everything as they go about making Australia a solar country. 
Is that the main body for solar installers or are there others as well that qualifications? Uh, the Clean Energy Council is the accreditation body for solar installers if they want to claim the STCs, small technology certificates, through the Clean Energy Regulator. So if you want to take part in the federal RET legislation, then you have to be accredited with the Clean Energy Council, yes. Are you able to tell us any more about the energy storage market that you you said is said to explode in 2015? Have you any previews of what's coming up there? Look, I'm not really a storage expert, but I can say that it's an exciting area that everybody's talking about. And of course, the big picture with storage is if we can get the cost down enough and the scale up enough, then the variability of renewable energy generation becomes a non-issue, which is pretty exciting. It means that it doesn't matter if the wind blows all night and not in the day because you can store the energy and then use it much like you can use dispatchable power now from a coal station. So look, storage is absolutely a huge part of making Australia very, very low emissions, which is great. But at this point, it's sort of a it's sort of a developing technology. So at the conference, you'll be able to hear from companies who are selling storage, but more excitingly, from scientists who are developing storage technology. And I saw a lady from Deakin speaking a couple of weeks ago about a specific type of battery that she's developing, you know, a certain chemical composition to avoid some of the dangers with lithium iron, which is that they can combust. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, people are always developing new chemical properties and exciting new battery. So, so get along and meet some scientists and talk about how they're going. Yeah, that's interesting about the lithium because it had a little involvement with electric push bikes and just even the issue of importing lithium batteries from China. You can't fly them over above a certain voltage because of that risk and mm. you have to put them in a container. Yeah, the more benign we can invent, the better, I suppose. Mm. But it would be nice to uh, take the wind out of the fossil fuel mantra that uh, renewables can't do baseload, which is really what this storage is, is fixing. Well, I just don't like the term baseload because we as a culture do not dispatchable have, then yeah that, dispatchable yes. makes more sense we don't yeah. we don't have a base load the load of australia goes up and down every moment and changes dramatically with the weather if we have a cool change come through our demand drops very quickly and dramatically and our generation can react to that just like wind coming in and out and also i like to tell people that wind power and solar power are very very predictable if not dispatchable mm-hmm. so so the people operating the national electricity market, if they know that a lot of wind power is coming or a lot of wind power is going to end, they can adjust all the other generation just as they do when we all come home from work and turn our tellies and air conditioners on. Yeah. So the system is already built to deal with variability in generation, just as it's built to deal with variability in demand. Actually, um, you remind us, just last week we interviewed someone putting a new system up, uh, a solar system up in northwest uh, Western Australia, and they have very strict requirements from the power authority there of how quickly they can ramp up and down. So they're putting in new technology that will actually watch the clouds, predict when they're going to arrive and what density, and start ramping the um, inverters down or up accordingly. And, exactly. Um, so the technology is there. And, um, yeah, I just think mm. storage will make everything better for sure because then we can dispatch. Yeah. But um, I, I just don't like the term baseload. So the exhibition is free, as is the continuous development section? Yeah, yeah. The continuous development is, like I was saying, um, making sure solar installers keep their skills up up to date. It's a requirement of their accreditation with the Clean mm. Energy Council. What, so what they sort can... of courses are they covering there? Do you, do um, you have any... Good question. I think it's about the quality of batteries and panels and the quality of installations and making sure they're uh, using quality parts and mm. using their skills I to install I know some of the manufacturers properly. like to run training on their specific systems, specifically if they're um, different in some way, like Enphase and SolarEdge. 
I know do training there, don't they? There you go, those those kind of training courses. Yeah. <laughs> On the wind side of things, do you know what's happening there? Are there any new developments in the wind industry? Well, I suppose there are. In terms of technology, not so much. Like I said, we just get bigger and more efficient. But in terms of financing structures and community engagement, there's quite a lot of exciting stuff going on. And as you probably know, the Senate inquiry into wind turbines reported in August 2015. And as a result of that, it looks like the Federal Department of the Environment is going to announce a wind commissioner and an independent scientific panel to advise the minister. So those are the kind of changes that are going on for us. And look, we've had a huge change in leadership. We had a leader who made public comments that were sort of anti-wind and the new leader has not done so so far so we we wait with bated breath to see how it all goes yeah certainly um it's given a lot of people a bit of a sense of relief i think in this industry well yeah well we're certainly hoping that it's uh, optimistic times ahead although there's nothing concrete mentioned yet is there well no just the moves to put arena and the cefc under the department of the environment which is seen by many as a positive move. And uh, hopefully they'll get rid of the bill to abolish them. And uh, that would be great. All right, on that note, I think we'll wrap it up. Thank you so much, Alicia Webb, for joining us today and explaining your project. No worries. Thank you. Um, and, and your website, Alicia, just before we leave? cleanenergycouncil.org.au. Thank you. <laughs> Easy as. For listeners, uh, let you know about Beyond Zero's Renewable Energy Superpower Report, which is being launched at Melbourne Uni on the 19th of October. That's a 5.30 session. Come on down. It's a free event. There'll be panellers and discussion from the author himself and other respectables in the industry. If you want to listen to our show or any others that you would like to tune into, you can go to our website. That's bze.org.au, media slash radio, and you'll find them there. You can also find us on Twitter at BZE Tech Show. Thanks for listening. Thank you to my co-host, Kay and Michael. Thanks, Thanks so. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.